So 2,000 years ago, Jesus was walking around Palestine, Israel. And over and over again, Jesus warned Israel to repent of her wickedness. One example, if you have a Bible, find Luke chapter 13. Luke chapter 13. If you need to use your table of contents, there's no shame. That's all right. It's kind of toward the right. Luke chapter 13. And while you're finding that, let me give you just a bit of important backdrop. Jesus is headed toward the capital of Israel, Jerusalem, with a group of Galileans and their pilgrims on a pilgrimage. Okay? So it's like the Canterbury Tales, maybe, but not as bawdy. Um, so uh, Jesus is, is kind of the leader of this group of pilgrims headed toward the capital. And on their way, some people come up and say, Have you heard the latest? Have you heard the news? And they give him some news about a cat by the name of Pontius Pilate, who is a particularly nasty piece of work. He was the governor of that part of the world. And they tell him about how some other pilgrims from Galilee, just like this little group that Jesus is with, how just a few days before, there were some Galilean pilgrims. They were in the temple. They were offering their sacrifice. And Pilate doesn't like this kind of thing. So he sent his troops in and they slaughtered every one of them. Jesus' response is really shocking, right? Somebody comes up to you, a whole bunch of people have just been murdered. You expect a certain kind of empathetic response, right? But in Luke chapter 13, verse 3, Jesus says, or starting in verse 2, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the others because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will likewise perish. Now, that's an odd response, right? Somebody brings to you a a tragedy and then you kind of punch them in the throat, right? Pay close attention. Jesus is making it clear that those who refuse his summons to repent, to change the direction of their life, to abandon this crazy agenda that a lot of Israelites were having at the time of fighting for their national kind of um, freedom against Rome, Jesus is saying, unless you stop acting like that, unless you extricate yourself from this national kind of um, pride and get with my agenda, you're going to suffer the same consequence. And then in verse 4, look what happens. Jesus says, what about the other tragedy? Those 18 on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So if the citizens of Israel continued to refuse Jesus' call to repentance, to to turn away from their agenda, then those who escaped the Roman troops and swords will will die under the collapsing of walls. 
Now, this is a terrifying warning. These words coming out of the mouth of Jesus, this is not the kind of words we like to think about coming out of the mouth of Jesus. We like all those warm, fuzzy words, right? About love your enemies and be meek and work for peace. But that's not what's coming out of his mouth right now. Look what he does next. He tells this interesting story. It's almost humorous until you realize that it's actually sinister. Verse 6. He told a parable, a story. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard and he came seeking fruit on it and he found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put out manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. What Jesus is saying is that he's the vineyard owner. And he's been coming to the Lord's garden. And he's been seeking the fruit of repentance. And apart from a very few followers, and and they're really not much to show, they're pretty muddled up themselves, he's found no fruit in Israel. No repentance. Not even the cities where he does his mightiest deeds, where he does incredible miracles. So Jesus is saying that he is prepared to give Israel, and particularly Jerusalem and the temple, one more chance. And if they still refuse, their doom is sealed. So unless Israel repents of this headlong rush into destruction, she will suffer the same fate as those whom Pilate killed or who were crushed by the Tower of Siloam. In other words, Roman swords and falling masonry will be their fate if they refuse to repent. Like the fig tree, unless Israel comes into the agenda of God, she will be cut down. And then notice what he says in verse 22. Luke chapter 13. He went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door... And you begin to stand outside and to knock on the door saying, Lord, open to us. He will answer you. I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God. But you yourselves cast out and people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at the table in the kingdom of God and behold some are who are last will be first and some are first who will be last Jesus is saying look there is a narrow window of time there is a narrow door and once it is shut there will be no chance your destruction is imminent And then look at verse 31. 
At that very hour, some Pharisees came to him and said, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, Go and tell that fox. Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today, and tomorrow and the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and that day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not. Behold, your house is forsaken, And I tell you, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Look, Jesus is saying Jerusalem is facing the equivalent of a barnyard fire. Seen from the point of view of the livestock. Jesus has longed to do what a mother hen does in such a circumstance. But the chicks refuse. They refuse to come under his wing. Over and over throughout his ministry. I just picked two pages in my Bible to show you that this was a dominant theme of Jesus. Warning Israel, you better get your act together. You better come into my agenda. I am the revelation of God. You've got to line up with me. Over and over he tells Israel, you've got a window of opportunity. And when the door closes, it is closed. He said to them, if you hold out much longer, you will be utterly destroyed. Turn to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19, verse 41. And when he drew near to Jerusalem and saw the city... He wept over it. Now you know already, why is he weeping? And you feel the weight of the narrative, right? He's been begging Jerusalem to repent. Why? Because if she doesn't, her doom is near. And he draws near to the city and he wept over it and he said, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. If you had known, what you, if you would do the thing that would bring peace, this would all not happen. You, it's like Jesus sees the truck coming, right? And he says, here's how to get out of the way of it. It's by getting in line with me and my agenda as the revelation of God. But Israel doesn't. And he says, oh, if you had just known, right? He's standing there looking at her. But now they're hidden from your eyes. You had a chance and now you can't even see the chance anymore. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children with you, within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. God himself is visiting Israel In Christ. And Israel doesn't receive it. This is the moment. When God is visiting Israel. Forty years later. A.D. 70. It happened. Jesus' words came painfully true. 
Rome sacked Jerusalem. The ancient historian Flavius Josephus, he was an eyewitness. He's described the horror. Some Jewish nationalist had mobilized and killed a Roman garrison. And this led the Roman emperor Nero to to commission Vespasian and his son Titus to crush the uprising. There was a war between Rome and Israel. It lasted from AD 60 to AD 70, four years, all around this area where Jesus was. And then in the final five months, Titus, general of the army at this point of Rome, led the legions of Rome to surround Jerusalem. The 5th and the 12th and the 15th legion were on the west side of Jerusalem. The famous 10th legionnaires were on the east side on the Mount of Olives. After several failed attempts to breach the walls of Jerusalem, they launched a secret night mission. They surprised the guards. They broke through the walls. And what followed was one of the great atrocities in human history. Here's one historical account. The slaughter within was even more dreadful than the spectacle from without. Men and women, old and young, insurgents and priests, those who fought and those who entreated mercy were hewn down in indiscriminate carnage. The number of the slain exceeded that of the slayers. The legionaries had to clamber over heaps of dead to carry on their work of extermination. It's interesting that it was 40 years, isn't it? It was a generation. What we are seeing in these amazing passages of Scripture and in this historical account is how the words of Jesus' warning came true. What we are seeing is that Jesus is not only a fierce lover, he is a ravenous lion. This is a very powerful and real sense that the Lord's pathos for Israel doesn't let up. And in AD 70, the anger of God was unleashed on Jerusalem. Now, we don't like to think of God in that way. You know, we we don't like this idea. We want this lover who has no judgment in his voice and no judgment in his actions. But that is not God. That is the Oz of the American idol behind the curtain. The real God is not only a lover, he's a roaring lion about to pounce on his prey. God is our lover, but he will brook no no idols. He will allow no rivals. Some people like to say the Old Testament gives us an image of a God of wrath and the New Testament a God of grace. They haven't read the Gospels. (laughs) And they haven't read all the grace in the Old Testament. It's a really arbitrary distinction that doesn't have anything to do with the reality of the literature. In the Old Testament, he's abounding in grace and he's fierce in justice. And in the New Testament, what do you do with this? He's not only abounding in grace, he's also fierce in justice in the New Testament. 
He is a God of grace and He is a God of justice. And if our definition of love can't handle that, it's our definition that's wrong, not Him. Turn to Luke 21. Luke 21, verse, beginning in verse 25, this passage that I read just a little bit earlier. There will be signs and sun and moon and stars and on the earth distress of nations and perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves. People fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world for the powers of the heaven will be shaken and then they will see the Son of Man coming in, cl- in a cloud with power and great glory. And when these things begin to take place, straighten up, raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Jesus is telling about the fact there is coming a day when the universe will be disrupted and he will return. And look at that last phrase. When these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. You see, if you have embraced the agenda of God in Jesus, if you have oriented your life around Jesus and His kingdom, you will be spared from destruction. Why? Because once this lion offered himself as a lamb and he was slaughtered so that you could escape this destruction. But there's more to this passage. If the return of Jesus is something his genuine followers can take hope in, it is entirely different for nations and individuals who are not following Christ. The structure and language of Zechariah 14 that Amelie read to us and the whole of Luke chapter 21 shows us that it will be similar for us. It will be similar for our nation. It will be similar for you at the return of Christ if you have not oriented your life around Christ as the center. Fear and panic and destruction will be as real as it was in AD 70. It will be cosmic. The fabric of the universe will convulse. Look at verse 26. Fainting with fear, literally stop breathing. So afraid, your breath is taken away. Absolute terror. And rightly so. Augustine, the great African bishop of the 4th and 5th century, he wrote, the first coming of Christ the Lord, God's Son and our God, was in obscurity. The second will be in the sight of the whole world. When he came in obscurity, no one recognized him but his own servants. When he comes openly, he will be known by both good people and bad. When he came in obscurity, it was to be judged. When he comes openly, it will be to judge. You see, we live in a culture that downplays accountability as if judgment will never occur. Our culture tends to minimize the authority of God to punish unrighteousness. Many people do not realize that there is more to the Bible than a collection of moral myths. There's prophecy in the Bible. You know, this thing that we just read about, the stuff that's going to happen to Jerusalem, written, spoken by Jesus in the 30s, 
happening in the 70s? That's a prophecy that Jesus spoke and it happened. The passage in Luke I've just read to you is another prophecy Jesus spoke and it will happen. There will come a moment when your window of opportunity is over. When the door is closed. And as surely as summer follows swiftly and surely upon the growth of the trees in the spring, so the coming of Jesus will follow the signs he speaks about. And when he returns, his judgment will be comprehensive. And if we insist on going away from God, on going our own way, there will come a point when we miss the opportunity for eternal salvation that God so graciously offers in Jesus. The last thing you want is God the hunter, the warrior, the king, the lion moving toward you at an infinite speed. There will be no stepping out of the way. But there's coming a day when this will happen. When he will take his stand on the shore of the lake of fire, Revelation says, where all of his enemies will be tormented in the presence of the angels and the Lamb forever and ever. You know, as I've been thinking about this all week, it struck me. We like to talk about the love of God and we like to try to woo people into the kingdom by His love. But I also need to warn my family and friends if they continue to resist. Their creator is not only their lover, he will be a hunting lion. And they need to turn to him now. I encourage you to in love, not only talk about the grace of God to your friends and colleagues, but ask God for the wisdom and courage To talk to them about the wrath of God. Because it matters. Today is the first Sunday of Advent. For the next four weeks we have a great chance to call out for God to break into our lives. To break into our own selfish patterns of behavior. Look... God's grace in your life doesn't give you a sin at freedom kind of card, you know. It doesn't give you the right to just do whatever you want, whenever you want. These four weeks, this is a great time for you to own up to the ways in which you are resisting God. The ways in which you are claiming your kingdom and not his kingdom. There's a lot of practices that our church is offering from Sunday worship to the Advent um, schedule of scripture readings. There's a lot of practices our church is encouraging you to do for these four weeks so that you can prepare for the return of Christ. 
I encourage you to beg God to break into your selfish patterns of behavior, to shatter your own selfish pursuits. To Look, some of you know your heart is hard to God. Some of you know there are areas of sin in your life that you are hard toward God about. Would you beg God to soften your heart because much is on the line? It's time for repentance. It's a season in the life of the church to take our sin and our needs seriously. It's time to long and hope and pray for Christ to be birthed anew in our hearts. It's a time to renew our journey away from this old life to a life where we live under the power of God. Advent's a season for you to assess the current estate, the current state of your relationship with your lover who is also a lion. It's a season for you to commit to an unconditional surrender to Christ and his kingdom. Now, there's a good chance that for some in this room, this commitment needs to occur for the very first time. And I would say to you, if God is at work in your life drawing you toward him, you're in a season of visitation. And there comes moments when the seasons of visitation are no more. I beg you, if God is visiting you, come to him. Yield to him. Surrender to him and to his kingdom. And look, if you're a Christian... If you've already done that before and you are secure in God, but there are areas of your life that you know are wicked, that you know are dark, that you're holding back from God, repent. Confess to God your sin. Beg Him for His mercy. Ask Him to deliver you because much is at stake. You need to embrace Christ. Our God is a great lover, but he will tolerate no rivals. Let's pray.